Please turn to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. And this morning we want to read the first six verses of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 4. Our focus in this morning's message will be on verses 4 through 6, but please follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, as we come before your word, we recognize we come before uh, that by which we're supposed to live. You say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We believe these words to be part of your inspired word, and so we would receive them this morning as nourishment for our souls and instruction for our minds and even bread to satisfy us. Bless us as we seek to open up these verses in your scriptures. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. I wonder what you would say uh, to this question. What is it that binds and unites Anglican Christians in Zambia, Lutheran Christians in Brazil, Presbyterians in Scotland, and Baptists such as ourselves in Winston-Salem, North Carolina? Uh, We love to celebrate, as we did a little while ago when we confessed the faith together through the Nicene Creed, that there is one holy Christian church. What makes us one? What actually binds us? Our particular denomination is what we call a Protestant denomination. We're not part of the Roman Catholic Church. So we believe, we confess that our unity with brothers and sisters of different denominational groups in different parts of the world cannot be institutional, meaning that it's not that we just agree to submit to one certain pope or bishop or leader or something like that. It's not an institutional unity, but wherein consists our unity with Christians all across the world in every place, even those who we may legitimately share some differences with? What is it that unites the Anglican Christian in Zambia? The Presbyterian in Scotland, the Lutheran in Brazil, and the Baptist in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Well, I believe, in large part because of the text that we're going to look at this morning in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, that our unity with all Christians everywhere is based primarily on our assent to the truth. The truth as it is in Jesus, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, The faith as it's conveyed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. It is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ that binds every Christian in every place. And it is our common confession with all those who together with one voice say that Jesus is Lord, that we find our unity. I want to consider this morning verses 4 through 6. Let me ask that we read them again together. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Very, very simple outline I'd like us to follow this morning. It's a three-point outline. Uh, The first point is the context. The second point is the text. And the third point is lessons from the text. And our Puritan and Reformed forefathers would highly uh, commend such an innovative outline. The context, the text, and lessons from the text. First of all, let's look at the context. Uh, why are these verses here? This, this uh, confession, this, it almost sounds like a creed that intrudes into this text in verses 4 through 6. Why does it appear here and not, say, in the opening of the book? Or maybe in the conclusion of the epistle to the Ephesians. Why do these verses appear here in this particular context? I think it's for two basic reasons. And I think as we look at the context, these will be self-evident. The first is to expound upon the theme of unity addressed in previous verses. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The theme here in the opening of chapter 4 is this theme of unity that is to characterize all of God's people in the context of the church. And so I think these verses in verses 4 through 6 about this uh, uh, one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all. I think the reason these verses appear here is to accent and indeed expound upon the unity that all of God's people are to share with one another. But I think there's a second reason, and you would not see this in the verses that we read, but I do think these verses are here, in verses 4 through 6, to prepare us for the subsequent verses that have to do with the diversity in the body of Christ, particularly with reference to diverse gifts that God gives to His people. So Ephesians 4 and verse 7, the very next verse, after all these unities are given, these seven unities in verses 4 through 6, chapter 4 verse 7 says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then it goes into various ones who were called to different offices in the church and those who have been given uh, equipment to do the work of ministry. Uh, Every single individual in the body of Christ has been given some measure of giftedness and that uh, tends to yield to the uh, good and praiseworthy and godly diversity that exists in the church. So there are these two things I want you to see in the context. The first is that we're given these verses, first of all, to accent and indeed expound the unity that Christians are to share with one another. And then secondly, Paul is trying to prepare us for the discussion that we'll get into next week on the legitimate diversity that ought to exist in the body of Christ. There's this unity and there's this beautiful diversity as well. The main purpose of these verses is to ground the Ephesians in the unity that they share with all Christians, including those in their local assembly, both Jew and Gentile, and with Christians in every place, and to prepare them for a discussion on the diversity that might exist in the context of a particular local church. All right, that's all I have to say about the context. Now look with me secondly at the text, and I'm going to try to move through these verses very quickly and spend more of time on the lessons that we're to see from this text. What is the substance of Christian unity? What is it that binds all of God's people everywhere? Around what is Christian unity built? What principles or elements form the foundation of the unity of Christian people? I think it's these things, at least these things, that we have 
in verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 4. And so all I want to do this morning is look very briefly at each of these seven unifying principles that Paul gives us in this passage. I understand these seven unifying principles to form the foundation of Christian unity. And for the sake of time, I'll only give brief treatment to each one. First of all, we read in our text in verse 4, there is one body. There's one body. What is this a reference to? I believe that the one body in this text refers to the one body of Christ. That is, the universal church, the global church, made up of all true believers in every place. That is the one body. It is the body of Christ. It is the church universal. And though the universal church is in view, I think, it also has implications for the local church. As each local church, like our own, is meant to be an expression of the universal church. Each local body is to be a a local expression of the global body all around the world. There is one body, the church, with many local expressions in particular regions or areas throughout the world. The implications for unity seem quite plain, don't they? Unity is essential because Christ has only one body. If Christians divide from one another, what are they doing? They're dividing the body of Christ. If, If all those who... To entertain the illustration that Paul uses to all those who are, say, a hand, form a church of just hands, the body of Christ is fractured. There's only one body. And therefore, to divide from others who are part of that body is to divide the body of Christ. You can almost hear echoes of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is is speaking to those Corinthians who are now uh, developing various factions in Corinth, and they're following particular popular Christian leaders. Some are saying, I'm of Paul, and this is the church where we podcast Apollos and, and listen to his sermons. And what does Paul say? Is Christ divided? No, is the body of Christ divided? Some of you are, are, are developing these factions and dividing from one another. Can Christ's body be divided? The obvious answer is it cannot. If there is one body, the church, one body of Christ, then there is a unity that we share with all Christians in every place. And what was particularly important for the Ephesians to appreciate, as this word is given to them, is that in the Ephesian context, they were meant to appreciate that this one body was made up not only of Jews, not only of Gentiles, but both Jews and Gentiles in one body. There's not... Two groups. Mm-hmm. They have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There's not two bodies of Christ. There's only one. And both Jews and Gentiles have been incorporated in that one body. Let me ask, we've looked at this several times, but just flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, if you would, verse 6. This mystery is, chapter 3, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, that one body of Christ, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Christ himself is understood in Ephesians to be the lone head of the body of Christ. It's said of him in chapter 1, verse 22 through 23 of the epistle to the Ephesians, and he put all things under his feet and gave him Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in our text, this is the first unifying principle upon which Christian unity is built. There is only one body, one body of Christ. Secondly, we read that there's one spirit, plainly a reference to the Holy Spirit. If you turn back again to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 18. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There aren't multiple spirits by whom we can come to God. There is only one spirit and therefore only one being through whom we all have access to God. The implication is if there's only one spirit and Jews come to God through that one spirit and Gentiles come to God through that one spirit and Anglicans in Zambia come to God through that one spirit and Lutherans in Brazil come to God through that one spirit and we even now come to God through that one spirit. This is to ground us in the unity that we share with others. If we all believe in the one Holy Spirit through whom we have access to God, we stand united. The emphasis is on inclusion and commonality. The Old Covenant, you came to God through the sacrificial system. And by its very nature, that excluded various ones from coming to God who did not have access to that particular sacrificial system. But in the New Covenant, all those who are God's people in every place, regardless of background, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic advantage, we all come through the one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, through Him we have access to God. And I think this should yield or contribute to our unity with one another. You can see um, a, a Jew in the Ephesian church. He's looking at his Gentile brother or sister, and he was to have this sense, you know, he comes to God in the very same way that I do. Amen. He comes to God by the very same means that I do. And this should help us in the context of this particular church. As you look at your brothers and sisters here, you should have this awareness. Each one comes to God through the promised Holy Spirit. And each one, if he or she is a believer in Christ, has that Holy Spirit residing in his or her own soul. It's hard to divide from one another when we appreciate that. We all have the Holy Spirit. And it's through that same Holy Spirit that we all come to God. And the Holy Spirit is working in each and every one of us. might give us a little more patience with one another, right? To appreciate that the Holy Spirit is at work in every Christian person. It should contribute to our unity. But not just in the local church. It should contribute to our unity with brothers and sisters all around the world. Uh, I'm reminded of, maybe you see this in particular films or movies where... There's um, a man and a woman, and they're in love, and they're separated for some reason, and uh, they maybe are on the phone, or maybe not, and it's nighttime, and they're looking up at the same moon. And, and, and you know, do you, are you looking at the moon tonight? <laughs> I am. I'm looking at it. And there's some mysterious connection there, right? Because they're both looking at the same moon. Well, that's a little bit superficial and silly. Uh, if you talk like that to your loved one, I'll just leave that with you. (laughs) But it acknowledges, right, there's something about both having access to the same thing that somehow connects us. Well, that's all a little bit superficial. This idea of coming to God through one spirit, both going to God in the same way, uh, is not at all superficial. It contributes to our unity with one another. And it should encourage us, even today, as, as, as Egyptian Christians have already met this morning as even uh, probably now our Christian friends, brothers and sisters in Shanghai are going to bed. They came to God in the same way that all Christians come to God through the one Holy Spirit and that should contribute to our unity. 
Well, that's the second unifying principle forming the foundation of Christian unity. Now, thirdly, one hope. Verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You might remember Paul's prayer. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. What does Paul pray for there? He prayed after giving, after enumerating all these wonderful blessings, these spiritual blessings that belong to all of God's people. He prays there that these Ephesians would appreciate and understand and know the hope of the calling to which they had been called. What is the hope of the Christian's calling? It's those very things that are listed in Ephesians chapter 1. We are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been chosen and predestined by God. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We've been united to Christ and are considered attached to Him and even His bride. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit. We have the hope of heaven and eternal life with God forever. This is the Christian's hope. And it's the only Christian hope. No true Christian anywhere in the world hopes ultimately in material things. When princes or kings or presidents or politicians, we hope not in health, wealth, and prosperity that, that man can afford. We hope in the eternal life that is hid with Christ that we will enjoy forever with Him in glory. That is the hope of the Christian's call. Not only is it the only hope of Christians, it is the only hope for mankind. Only hope. I mean, it's staggering to me. You know, we, we read in Ephesians 2, we talked about this verse some weeks ago. How were the Gentiles described before they came to Christ? Well, they were outside of Christ. They were without hope and without God in the world. That is true of every man and woman outside of Christ. Without hope. Without God in the world. It really is amazing to think of unbelieving people approaching their death. What hope is there to have outside of Christ? Hope in the brotherhood of man? Hope in social progress? Hope in some ephemeral form of love that in some weird way binds us all? What hope is there outside of Christ? One of the most distinctive things about the Christian faith is that it offers hope. Hope that's worth living for. Hope that's worth dying for. And so I say to you this morning, I imagine there may be some here who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You don't believe on Him. You've not embraced the Gospel. You've not leaned on Him in faith and repentance. What is your hope in? I'm just honestly, you know, with with no distractions, we're here in this room, you don't have to answer out loud, but what do you hope in? Do you hope in anything at all? In what have you placed your hope? And will it let you down when you take your last breaths? Well, the Christian faith offers hope. Hope in Jesus Christ. Hope of eternal life. Hope of redemption. Hope that sin and death is going to be taken care of and destroyed finally and ultimately. Hope for all the wars and hostility that exist in our world. Hope for all the brokenness and and fracture and need in our world. Christianity offers that hope. And I commend that hope to you this morning. It is the hope of every Christian person in every church, in every context throughout the world who is called upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the one hope that binds all Christians And this is the third unifying principle forming the foundation of Christian unity. All Christians have one hope. So we've seen the one body, the one spirit, the one hope. Now fourthly, there's one Lord. This is surely a reference to 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. Many commentators, and perhaps you yourself observe, even as we read through the text, there is a Trinitarian nature to these verses, isn't it? Uh, There's the one Spirit in verse 4, the one Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5, and the one God and Father who is over all. You have to believe in God, the Trinity. There is one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the one Lord over all. He is the one upon whom every Christian throughout history is called upon for salvation. He is also the one to whom every Christian submits. Every Christian person looks to Jesus as Lord. That's why we repudiate the doctrine that teaches that you can have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. There's only one Lord. Every Christian calls on Him. Every Christian proclaims Him as Lord. And every Christian submits to Jesus as Lord. We all serve the Lord Christ and we are ultimately accountable to Him whether Jew or Gentile, whether old or young. And this unites us. The smallest Christian child serves at the command of Christ. And the oldest Christian saint on his or her deathbed serves at the command of Christ. We each one, with Christians everywhere, regardless of denomination and background, we submit to the marching orders of the Lord Christ and hold Him to be our Lord. There's unity to be found in serving the same Master in following the same cause, in serving the same mission, and obeying the same law, the law of the Lord Christ. There is one Lord. And this is the fourth unifying principle forming the foundation of Christian unity. Fifthly, still with me. Fifthly, one faith. Interesting interpretive question we have to ask here. Does this one faith mean, first, the subjective Experience of faith, meaning the means by which every Christian enters into a relationship with Christ. You can only come to Christ by faith. That's the only way by which you could enter into a saving relationship with Jesus. Is that what it talks about here when it references one faith? Or could it be an objective reference to the faith itself being the body of basic Christian beliefs? The, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude phrases it. Is that the way the term faith is being used here? For a handful of reasons, I believe that latter sense is the way in which this term is being used. But don't be afraid. Both are true. There is only one means by which you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is the subjective, personal experience of faith. Putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And there is only one foundational body of doctrine that we believe that we call the one faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it is this emphasis on the one faith that leads us to do what we did this morning. We confess the faith together. We celebrate the unity of the faith that we share with all Christians everywhere. We read the Nicene Creed. We sometimes read the Apostles' Creed. We confess very basic statements of Christian doctrine that we believe unite us with all Christians in every place. Now Paul does not expound in detail here what that one faith is. He doesn't enumerate a list of doctrines that are included in that one faith. I would speculate that if he did, he would probably give us something approximating the Apostles' Creed. But he doesn't do that. In other places, there's a reference to apostolic doctrine, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to the things most surely believed among us. I think, generally speaking, we should understand that it's very foundational, basic Christian truths about God, man, sin, Christ, and salvation. But he doesn't tell us exactly what this faith contains, and so I won't say anything more about it. Except to say, at the very least, what he wants to emphasize is that there is a basic body of Christian belief, and that basic body of Christian belief, that basic faith, is one. 
There aren't many Christian faiths. There's not a, a Gnostic faith and a Jewish faith and a Gentile. There's only one Christian faith. And our unity depends on the common confession of that one faith. Well, that's the fifth unifying principle. Now, sixthly, there's one baptism. Verse 5 says, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. The question arises whether this is a reference to spiritual baptism, which every single Christian undergoes, being united to Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, or whether it's a reference to water baptism, which almost every Christian undergoes as a sign and symbol of spiritual baptism. I don't really think the distinction is, is terribly important. Okay? I think the basic point is that there is one rite given, one ritual, one rite given, one ceremony given, by which believers are to signify their union with Christ. There's one baptism. There are not various baptisms. It's not a Jewish baptism. There's not uh, the baptism of John. There's only one Christian baptism, and it signifies union with Jesus Christ. It is baptism into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And it is to signify our union with the Lord Jesus, death to sin, newness of life, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and spiritual cleansing. Now another question arises. Does this mean that those who believe in believer's baptism and those who believe in infant baptism cannot be united? After all, the argument goes, there's only one baptism. Can we, can we say that we have Christian fellowship and unity with those who don't have our particular view of baptism? Personally, I think that misses the point entirely. That is to inject into this passage a present-day debate that would have been the furthest thing from Paul's mind. Paul doesn't have in his mind debates surrounding whether or not we should baptize infants. All he is seeking to do is to say that baptism is the only right by which people publicly identify with Christ and signify their union with Him. We could debate about how to do that best. But I think all that Paul is trying to say here is there's only one way by which people signify their union with Christ. One Christian baptism. If any believing Jew or Gentile were asked, by what symbol do you publicly identify as a follower of Christ, whether he was baptized as an infant or as a believer, he or she would have given the same answer. By baptism. It is by my baptism, the one Christian baptism, signifying that I am united to Christ. That is the symbol by which I proclaim my faith in Him. And this is the sixth unifying principle forming the foundation of Christian unity. There is one baptism. And now seventhly, finally, there is one God and Father of all. Look with me at verse 6. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Very simply, very briefly, Paul concludes with this sort of general catch-all statement about God who is one and who is the Father of all those who are in Christ. Each and every Christian has been made by God's grace part of the same household of God. And Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Every Christian is understood to be part of the same family, to have the same Father, to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore it's appropriate that we refer to one another as brothers and sisters. It's not that we as the church are like a family. We are a family, in actual fact. In a way that's more real than, than blood relations. We are brothers and sisters through the blood of Christ. And you are more truly family with the Anglican Christian in Zambia and the Presbyterian in Scotland than you are even with your blood relations who are outside of Christ. 
Those who are children of the one God and Father who is over all are united in a blessed unity. We're part of the same household. We're part of the same Christian family. And each one of us, by God's grace, as those who have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, call upon God as Father. And He is over all and through all and in all. This is the seventh unifying principle forming the foundation of Christian unity. There's one God and Father of all, and He is over all and through all and in all. So there you have it. Seven unities binding all Christians, every single Christian person you will ever meet. For every Christian who truly believes, who is truly a child of God, they will confess that there is one body. There is one Holy Spirit through whom we have access to God. There is one hope of our calling. Our hope is in Jesus Christ to redeem us from our sins. There is one Lord Jesus Christ to whom we submit. There is one faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. The things most surely believed among us. There is one baptism. One rite by which we signify our union with Christ and our allegiance to Him. And there is one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Well now briefly, in the few minutes that remain, I'd like to consider thirdly and finally lessons from the text. We've looked at the context. The text itself. Now thirdly, Lessons from the text. I have three. There are many, but I have just three this morning. This verse has implications for our unity in the local church. That's true. But I'm deliberately in these lessons from this text, applying this text to our relationship with Christians who are outside of our particular local assembly. Okay? There are implications for our unity here in this church. But I want to draw implications for our relationship with Christians outside of our local church. First of all, number one, we should recognize, emphasize, and celebrate the unity that we share with all Christians everywhere. We should recognize, emphasize, and celebrate the unity that we share with all Christians everywhere. When we appreciate the simplicity of this text, and yet the substantive nature of the unity that these seven unifying beliefs embody, it really does put the differences that exist among sincere and well-meaning Christians in perspective. When we embrace the simple but substantive unity found in this text, it does put some of our differences in perspective. These seven unifying principles should inform the way we think and talk about other Christians. And they should engender in us a sense of solidarity with every single Christian person, regardless of denomination, of background, and of who they read or podcast. Very simple and substantive unity that's contained here. And it should affect the way we think about our unity with other Christians around the world. First of all, we should at least recognize that this unity exists. Though I might disagree with the way a particular church does things down the road, there is a unity that binds us. If we hold these things in common, these seven things, that there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, there is a real unity that exists, and we should vocalize that. We should recognize that. Secondly, we should emphasize that unity. Let's just go ahead and say it. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the faith by which you come to believe on Him is a lot more important than our particular view of baptism or our particular view of how to organize worship services. Our particular view of how to organize the church calendar, whether we should have small groups or prayer meetings or, or whatever. 
There are certain things that should be emphasized as matters of first importance. And I contend that they're the things listed for us in this text. Foundational, fundamental truths that should be at the very heart of the Christian faith. We should emphasize those things. Not neglect those other things. Those other things are not matters of indifference. And if you've been tracking with us through this series in Ephesians, you know I don't believe they're matters of indifference. But we should emphasize these truths especially. I'm reminded of something Robert Fisher, close friend of this church, always says to his ministerial students. Make the main things the plain things and the plain things the main things. God help us to do that. We're to recognize these things, emphasize these things, and we should celebrate this sort of unity as well. And we should celebrate the unity that we share with Christians all over the world, regardless of denominational differences. We should rejoice in the one gospel that binds us, in the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, the one God and Father who is over all. We should celebrate that kind of unity. And I'll just say, why Christian brothers and sisters in one church, one true church, would view Christian brothers and sisters in another true church as competition is beyond me. It was beyond Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, I'll just remind you, a church with a lot of problems. He writes to them and says, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Didn't view other Christians as competition. He rejoiced in the fact that there were other churches and other good and godly works of God. We should not view as other believers as competition. My friend, we don't compete with other Christians for the souls of men and women. We compete with pagans. We compete with false religions. We compete with the American dream that seeks to ensnare men's hearts and lead them to prize ephemeral idols over Christ. We compete with spiritual powers that seek to blind men and women and keep them in bondage. We don't compete with other gospel-centered Christians who hold to this one Christian faith. Not our competition. We don't view other Christian people, other churches, as our enemies. Brothers and sisters, we do have enemies. They're not those who confess these same things as us. Our enemies are called the world, the flesh, and Satan. We war against them. We fight against them. We don't fight against our brothers and sisters in other churches or other denominations. And God have mercy on us if we ever act like that. Now let me just say that these verses do not diminish or lessen the importance of differences that exist among sincere Christians. In fact, I think that these seven unities are in place. If we could agree on these seven things, it may even increase the importance of having serious and thoughtful conversations about the way in which we believe that other Christians and churches and movements should change and mature to the glory of God. In other words, because I have these seven things in common with you, I'm going to care a whole lot more about what you think about secondary issues. If we can agree on these things, if we're united on these things, intramural discussions become more helpful and profitable. I don't particularly care about Joel Osteen's view of a plurality of elders or church polity. The man is a charlatan. He preaches a false gospel. He's not a Christian. We don't share in the unity of Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 with health, wealth, and prosperity gospels like that. However, with Trinity Church of Winston-Salem down the road, a sincere and godly gospel-centered community of believers, I care a lot more about intramural discussions with a church like that because we share in the same unity, the same gospel, and therefore those conversations can be held so much more profitably 
If we share in this unity, conversations about church health all of a sudden matter a great deal more. Because we're united, we can have helpful, godly discussions about how to better please Christ. Because we're both concerned to march at His command, it is appropriate to seek to help one another understand the marching orders better. So with all that said, I'd like to take this opportunity to clarify something that I think is really important. What is the posture of our church, Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem, toward other churches in this area? Two things. If you hold these things in common with us, these seven unifying principles, if we can agree on Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, we stand with you. And you stand with us. If we can agree on the faith once for all delivered to the saints, we are united. We are bound to one another, and that is the unapologetic posture of this church. The church in Winston-Salem stands with us in the historic Christian faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints, then we're with them, and they're with us. There could be all sorts of things that bother me about the way another church chooses to do a certain thing. But if we're truly united in the foundations of the Christian faith, we are truly united. We will not be isolationists. We will not be sectarians. We will not be separationists. We will cooperate with other churches in the progress of the gospel. We will recognize, emphasize, and celebrate the unity that we share in truth with other churches, both in Winston-Salem and everywhere else. And this is one of the reasons we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not excited about everything that goes on in the Southern Baptist Convention, but they hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so they're with us and we're with them. We're glad to stand with those churches and cooperate with one another. There are churches in this area who are preaching the same gospel we're preaching. We stand with them, united with them, and ought to partner and cooperate with them. We have to pray for them, serve them, partner in ways we can, and when occasion arises to speak helpfully into their church practice. Secondly, that's not the second lesson, just the second reason, the second thing characterizing our posture toward other churches. Because you hold these things in common with us, those churches that do, your health matters to us. The church in Winston-Salem is with us in the foundations of the faith. Now their health matters to us. Because we're united with other churches, we ought to care about their health. We ought to pray for them. We ought to serve them. We ought to work with them. And when occasion arises, we ought to speak helpfully into the lives and practices of other Christians and other churches. And God helping us, when occasion arises, we will do so. The health of this local church is urgently and pressingly our business and our responsibility before God. However, I don't think we are allowed to look with indifference upon the health and progress of other churches in our area. We should care about other churches. We should seek to help other churches. We should seek to elevate the overall standard of church health in our region. And so God helping us, we're going to do that. God will open doors for us. We will not hesitate to speak into the lives and practices of other churches because they're with us and we're with them and therefore they matter to us. Now let me just say this is one of the reasons why we pray for local churches every Sunday. Some of you have asked that. You know, why are we praying for the churches in our area? Why would we not? If they stand with us in the gospel... And they call Jesus Lord. And they're part of the wider Christian family who looks to God as Father and accesses Him by the one Spirit. We stand with them. We're on the same team. We're wearing the same jersey. And we're seeking to advance the same gospel and to see sinners converted to the same Savior. So we ought to pray. 
I want to pray for church health and for maturity and for growth and for progress in the gospel. It's a good thing to pray for the churches. Other churches are not our enemies or our competition. We have to work together to see this place, Winston-Salem, saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you should now conclude that if we pray for a particular local church, that's a blanket endorsement of everything that they do or teach. There is not a single church in Winston-Salem that I agree with in every single particular. And I imagine there's not a single or a couple of two members in this church who agree in every single particular on everything. But the crucial question is, are they Christ's? Do they belong to him? Are they one of his true churches? And if they are, then they are our brothers and sisters and they matter to us. And so we will pray for them. All right, the second lesson, and I'll move more quickly here as we draw to a close. The second and then one more after that. Second lesson from the text. This passage, these seven unifying principles, this passage does not advocate for, nor do any other passages in the Bible advocate for what I'm calling doctrinal minimalism. This passage does not advocate for, nor do any other passages in the Bible advocate for doctrinal minimalism. These verses are not seeking to establish a form of doctrinal minimalism. This is not an attempt to appeal to the lowest common denominator of Christian belief, ignoring the importance of major doctrines. First of all, I believe there are massive and substantial doctrines in this very text that every Christian must embrace. But on top of that, these are not the only three verses in the book of Ephesians. These verses appear in a wider context, in a wider epistle, in a wider Bible. And we've seen already Paul is urgently concerned about a number of things that are not necessarily contained in this text. And so this is not Paul saying, what's the, what's the lowest common denominator of, of Christian belief that we can agree with and therefore join hands with other people and, and sing songs together? It's not doctrinal minimalism. It's substantial unity. It's from the vantage of that substantial unity that we're to grow and progress and mature together in the doctrines of God's word. Third and final lesson. Meaningful unity requires common confession. Meaningful unity requires common confession. I contend that there is no such thing as Christian unity where any one of these seven unifying principles is lacking. You don't call on the one Spirit, the one Lord, the one God and Father who is over all. You don't share in the same one hope that is every Christian's calling. If you're not part of that one body of Christ, if you don't believe in the one baptism, the one faith, we don't share unity with you. Meaningful unity requires common confession, and therefore, if there are people who call themselves Christians who do not believe these things and hold these things in common with us, we are duty-bound to acknowledge we don't stand with them. There's a common confession. There's truths that bind us. There is a meaningful unity to be found in these verses. We will not, as a church, brush over false gospels. We will not wink at errant views of the Godhead. We will not share fellowship with those who refuse to submit to the Lordship of Christ. We will not stand united with those who seek to undermine the authority and infallibility of the the Scriptures. We will not join hands and sing with those who seek to bankrupt the faith once for all delivered to the saints by downgrading the foundational doctrines of Scripture and the Gospel. But if you confess along with us, with the true church in every age, with every single Christian person throughout time, that there is indeed one body, one spirit, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all, then wonderfully, 
we can share unity with you. We can recognize, we can emphasize, and we can celebrate that sort of unity, that meaningful unity grounded in the truths of the Bible. Finally, let me say this. If you are to be a Christian, this must be your confession as well. If you are to enter into a relationship with Christ, you must confess the truths of this passage. And you must call on the name of the Lord. And you must be saved in the same way that every single individual Christian has been saved throughout time. And that is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, repenting and renouncing those sins and placing your faith and trust in Him. There's one body, one spirit. You could have that one hope of the Christian's calling. If you believe on the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all, you will be saved. This is what Christians believe. And if you come to believe these things, you are ours. And we are yours. Because we together are Christ's. You can enter into those things that have united all Christians in every place. That is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. And I call to you my unbelieving friend. Who is without hope and without God in the world. To believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to enter into that hope. And if you reject that hope, I must warn you. You will be without hope and without God forever in eternal punishment. But freely, I can offer this morning with arms spread wide the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you too can enter into that hope and that you can have eternal life forever with the Lord Jesus Christ in paradise. That is the hope of the Christian's calling and I offer it to you this morning. It is available to you. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would sanctify us in these things and ground us in these truths. Pray that you would help us to recognize and emphasize and celebrate the unity that we share with all Christians in every place who embrace this common confession. We pray that you would never allow us to become separatists or isolationists, but that we would rejoice in the unity that we share with all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and embrace the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We thank you for the real, authentic, and true unity that we share through our common confession with every Christian in every place. You have not left us alone. We are not some exile group sitting here doing something in isolation, but we stand in the tradition of all of God's people everywhere who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe upon his word. We pray that you would show us ways in which we could stand with churches, even in our community, in our area. Pray that you would show us ways in which we could stand with churches around the globe. And recognize and emphasize and celebrate the unity that we have with them. We pray that you would draw each and every soul in this place into that one hope that is the calling of the Christian. And that none here would go home today without hope and without God in the world. But that each one would come in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.